Welcome to the Cherry Hills Podcast. We're in a study in the book of Ecclesiastes called Unsatisfied, The Search for Meaning. We're learning that chasing after satisfaction apart from God will leave us empty. Thanks for joining us. For everything there's a season, a time for every activity under heaven. A time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to harvest. A time to kill and a time to heal, a time to tear down and a time to build up. A time to cry and a time to laugh, a time to grieve and a time to dance. A time to scatter stones and a time to gather stones, a time to embrace and a time to turn away. A time to search and a time to quit searching. A time to keep and a time to throw away. A time to tear and a time to mend. A time to be quiet and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. God has made everything beautiful for its own time. He has planted eternity in the human heart. Even so, people cannot see the whole scope of God's work from beginning to end. I concluded there's nothing better than to be happy and enjoy ourselves as long as we can. People should eat and drink and enjoy the fruits of their labor, for these are gifts from God. For that reading from Ecclesiastes 3, I have in my hand here something I always dreamed about owning as a kid. It's an ant farm. I finally got one. Thanks to Trish Nelson, preschool teacher here at Cherry Hills. I just thought it would be so cool to have one of these because you get to watch the ants go about their daily lives. They, they get to dig tunnels. You get to watch them building things. And I want us to have this picture of this ant farm in our heads this morning because as a church, we are going through the letter of Ecclesiastes, not letter, the book of Ecclesiastes, an Old Testament book, and we have called this whole series we're doing this fall, Unsatisfied. And the reason I want us to think about this ant farm is because the author of Ecclesiastes, Solomon, has been asking this question, are human beings like ants trapped in an ant farm? Are we trapped in some sort of a meaningless existence? I mean, you have to admit, an ant in an ant farm doesn't have a very great life. They can only do so many things. Is the ant farm all there is to life? Well, let's just be honest. These are questions we've probably all asked at some point in our lives. It's one of the reasons I love Ecclesiastes. It's so raw and it's so honest. And so far in our series, we've learned that Solomon has tried to answer this question, the meaning of life question, by pursuing the different things that life in the ant farm has to offer. So what do we have inside of the ant farm, or life under the sun, as he calls it in the book of Ecclesiastes? Well, we have things like work. We have things like pleasure. And he pursues these things with his whole heart to discover, can a person be satisfied by these things we can find inside the ant farm? And his conclusion is no. Those things only lead to this word we've been hearing again and again, meaningless. Hevel is the Hebrew word. It's here one moment, it's gone the next. It's like chasing after the wind. They're here, but then they're gone. 
This week, we come to a bit of a turning point in the book of Ecclesiastes. After pursuing all these things that life has to offer us in the ant farm, Solomon changes directions a little bit. And if you're following on your notes, Solomon now considers the meaning of time. I mean, this makes sense to me. After considering all these things that life under the sun has to offer us that can't provide lasting satisfaction, he comes to one of two conclusions about our life here, our time here under the sun. One, our time here is random. We're like a bunch of ants who have no meaning in our existence. Or two, perhaps there's more than the ant farm. Perhaps there's more to life than just life under the sun. Now the text we're looking at this morning, as you heard from that reading, is probably the most famous text in all of Ecclesiastes. It was made popular by a 1960s rock band called The Birds, right? For every season, turn, turn, turn. Some of you young folks are like, what are you talking about? (laughs) Look it up. But I hope just because of the beautiful nature of this uh, section, we don't miss Solomon's key question. Remember, he is goading us. He's forcing us to ask the hard questions in life. And the question is, is there a purpose to the time that we've been given as humans? So I encourage you to grab your Bible, if you haven't already, and turn it to Ecclesiastes 3, starting in verse 1. If you don't have your own Bible, you can find this on page 462 of the black Bibles we have underneath the seats there. Always want you to be a first-hander in God's Word. If you don't own your own Bible, take that home with you as our gift to you. But page 462, or Ecclesiastes 3, 1. I'm going to actually have a start by reading verse 1 out loud together. I have it on your notes there. I'm, I have it in the New American Standard Version. I'll explain why in just a second, but would you mind reading that? It says, there is an appointed time for everything, and there is a time for every event under heaven. Now, the reason I wanted us to read from that translation is because I think they do a better job of that word appointed time. Some of your translations have the word season there, which is fine, but really the idea that Solomon is getting at here when it comes to time is that our time is not random. We're not like ants living in a meaningless existence. If you're following on your notes, he is saying our time is not random. It is under God's sovereign control. It is appointed. Your time here on earth is appointed. Now right now, we're talking about one of the big doctrines of Christianity. It's called the sovereignty of God. It sounds so complicated, but it's really simple. It just means that God is in complete control. God is in complete control. There's nothing, absolutely nothing that happens outside of my life or happens outside of your life. That happens outside of the universe. That is outside of God's influence and control. So to put verse one very simply, I would just say, God does everything at just the right time. There is an appointed time, God's time, for everything under the sun. This means under the heavens. This means that life is not random. It can't possibly random if it's appointed. There is a time for everything. Indeed, I like that last phrase in this verse. Solomon has been using the phrase under the sun to describe our lives here on earth. And here he switches to what? Under heaven. Suggesting the possibility that there may be something bigger than the ant farm. That there may be something bigger than life under the sun. Solomon's conclusion is that everything that happens in this time-bound universe, this life under the sun, is actually under the authority, under the rule of a God who rules in heaven. God is sovereign over time, 
and what happens inside of time. Nothing happens outside of the will of God. He regulates our minutes, he regulates our seconds, he rules all our moments of all our days. Nothing happens in life without his superintendence. Have I made this clear yet? Now how do you feel about that? A lot of people don't like this. A lot of people don't like this doctrine of God's sovereignty. People resent the idea that God is in control over my time. No, I set my own agenda. I live my own life. I'm the one who's in control. But as we're about to see, Solomon doesn't see the sovereignty of God as a negative thing, as God cramping on my style. He actually sees it as a beautiful thing that should lead us to great hope and expectation. Not only is there a time for everything, but God always does everything in the right time in our lives. And that leads us to this poem he writes in verse two, this famous poem. There's a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to uproot, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to tear down and a time to build, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to scatter stones and a time to gather them, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to search and a time to give up, a time to keep and a time to throw away, a time to tear and a time to mend, a time to be silent and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. Now what I don't wanna do is break down each of those things because I think even as we read that, we understand what Solomon is doing here. He's showing us the whole continuum of what it means to be human. You're born and you die and there's everything in between. You laugh and you weep. Those are the two extremes of human emotions on the continuum. And there's everything else in between and so on and so forth. Solomon is just painting a picture of our time here on earth as human beings. If you're following on your notes, the poem is a comprehensive description of how life works. Each of these pairs is intended to capture the experience of what it is to be human. And again, verse one, none of it's random. Whatever time you are in, it's not random. God has appointed that time for your life at this moment. That means a day is gonna come in God's sovereign plan when you will receive a phone call telling you your parents are dead. That will be a time to weep. There are times in your life to laugh, however, the day that you move into your dream home or you get that promotion from work. It's a time to rejoice, a time to laugh. There will be a time in your life when you are full of hope. And there is a time in life when we are hopeless and we want to give up. The things we own are useful for a time, but there's a time when we will bring them to goodwill because it's a time to throw away. You'll have children, and there will be a time where they make you laugh. You will have children, and there will be a time when they make you weep. That's the way it is. There are times of happiness, and there are times of pain. And Solomon's message, if you're following, is God has appointed a time for everything that happens in life. How do you feel about that? Does that scare you? Does it anger you? Does it confuse you? 
I know many people who think, well, why can't my life just be full of all the good things on that list? I just want times of good things. But let me ask you, do you? Do you really want that? I remember a movie about 10 years ago called The Truman Show. Have any of you ever seen this? It's a fantastic movie because it asked the question, if life were actually perfect, would we really enjoy life? So The Truman Show is all about Jim Carrey has this perfect life set up for him. Everything is great. His relationships is great. His work is great. Everything's great. And yet as time goes on, he realized something isn't right. This isn't how life is supposed to work. Everything can't be this perfect and still live in this sense of a heroic life, a meaningful life. And so he starts to discover that a lot of these things are just fake. They've been set up in his life. They're not real, and so he fights against it. He doesn't want to live this fake, perfect life. Tommy Nelson uses this illustration I thought would be helpful for us. I'm going to invite our piano player, Eric, to come out and demonstrate for this. But if you are familiar with a piano, you know that there's white keys on a piano, and then there's black keys on the piano, and the black keys are called sharps and flats. And I'm arguing to you that it's the sharps and flats of life that really make life what it is. So here's a familiar song played only in the white keys. If only good things happened. nice. It's a little boring, a little vanilla. But when you add in some of the black keys, it sounds a little bit more like this. Can you thank Eric? What I'm arguing here is that life is just like that. It would be a caricature without the black keys in our lives. In fact, I challenge you to think right now, what are the events in your life that have shaped you the most, that have formed you to become who you are most today? It's those black key experiences, yes? I was just thinking about this. My, I was convinced that God's plan for my life was that right now I would be teaching in some university right now. That's what God wanted for me. And so I went off to seminary 
And at that seminary, I experienced what I would call the spiritual wilderness of my life. It was a very difficult, challenging environment. I went through what can only be called the dark night of the soul there. Wondering, was God even present? Was he even there? And yet, it was in that black key moment, God introduced me and my wife to a church. And that church came alongside of us and began to encourage us and began to show us that maybe my idea of what my life should look like wasn't the right idea. Maybe God had something else in mind for us. And so here we are, 15 years later, so glad that we are. And I can look back and go, yeah, that was a really hard three years. It was a black key kind of three years in my life. And yet, I can say with all confidence, God used that to shape us and to form us into who we are today. Solomon is saying to us, God is not your genie. And that's a good thing. Life isn't gonna be full of only good things. Our time here under the sun is gonna include positive and negative experiences. Now, that can lead you to making one of two conclusions. This is where we're headed here. The first one is actually found in verses nine and 10 where Solomon repeats his question from chapter one. What do workers gain from their toil? I've seen the burden God has laid on the human race. This right here is where many people have landed today. We say to ourselves, why should I work so hard if it's all going to be destroyed anyway? Why should I get married if I'm just going to end up fighting? Why bother living today if tomorrow I die? Why should I even get out of bed in the morning? For many, our time here on earth, our time in the ant farm has led to this fatalism or at the very least, this cynicism about life and its meaning. Solomon, I will remind you here, is playing the devil's advocate for us. Remember, his whole goal is to goad us. He's asking these difficult questions that at all one point in our lives, we've all asked, what profit is there? We've all asked that. What profit is there right now in my life? What's the use? Why should I even bother? This is where many people in our culture, especially younger generations, are landing today. What's the use? What's the bother? But that's not where Solomon lands. We see where Solomon lands in verse 11, which I have printed on your notes. Would you read that out loud with me? He says, he has made everything beautiful in its time. He has set also eternity in the human heart. Yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. Why is fatalism? Why is cynicism not the answer to our time here on earth? Because, friends, if you're following, we are born with a longing for more than life under the sun. I'll put it differently. We know deep down inside of every one of us that this can't possibly be all there is. Because if this is it, then fatalism is the right answer. Then cynicism is the right answer. But God has set eternity on our hearts, this verse says. This explains why nobody, including Solomon and including you, and including me, nobody can be satisfied with life here under the sun. God accomplishes his purposes in time, but it will not be until we enter into eternity that we will see the big picture. Nobody explained the implications of this longing for eternity better than C.S. Lewis. 
He said this, on the, I have this on the screen, if I find myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. In other words, we don't become fatalists, we don't become cynics. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. Ah, that sounds exactly like Solomon. God has set eternity in our hearts, and so when we look at life here under the sun, inside of the ant farm, we are longing for something more. Why? Well, God is an eternal God, and we're told that he created human beings in his image. That means we are eternal beings. Yes, our lives in the ant farm are going to one day come to an end. We will be born, and we will die. But that life we live is not meaningless because that life is not all there is. This means we can look at our lives here on earth and find meaning and purpose. Our lives matter. It means that even the bad things, as I've been saying, have a purpose in your life. You may not see it now, but as Solomon says in verse 11, God makes everything beautiful in its time. He makes everything beautiful in its time. Paul says it this way in maybe the most oft misquoted verses in the Bible, Romans 8, 28. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. This does not say that only good things happen to those who love him. It says that in all things, in every season, in every time, God is sovereign. And he is working even those things for our good. This week, I was reminded of that. I was reading in my daily devotions in Psalm 119, and I came to this verse in Psalm 119, 71. It says, it was good for me to be afflicted so that I might learn your decrees. And I just, have you, you ever have this when you're reading the Bible and like a verse just slams right into you? Like, what a perspective. And I was thinking about my situation and many of your situations, right? I have a kidney disease. Would I want that kidney disease? No. Do I wish I didn't have it? Yes. And yet, what if I had that perspective about God's sovereignty, that it was good for me to be afflicted? Why? Because I can trust God. God knows what he's doing even in the good things and in the bad things of our lives. He's working all things together for our good. That's why God's sovereignty should not lead to cynicism. It leads to hope. Though we may not understand everything that happens to us in our lives under the sun with eternity in mind, we can think of our lives like a tapestry, right? Being woven together. We've got one piece over here and one piece over here and God is weaving together this beautiful thing. I may not be able to see it at the time, but one day, I will. Because if you're falling on your notes here, our lives here are preparing us for eternity. They're preparing us for life outside of the ant farm. And so this leads Solomon to two conclusions about life here. The first one should sound familiar to us by now. It's found in verses 12 and 13. He says, I know that there is nothing better for people than to be happy and to do good while they live. 
that each of them may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all their toil. This is the gift of God. If you're on your notes, despite the uncertainty of life, Solomon's wisdom is to enjoy life and do good. Enjoy life and do good. Even when we don't understand everything God might be doing in our lives, we cannot let what we cannot know destroy what we can enjoy. I'll say that again. We cannot let what we cannot know destroy what we can enjoy. You can't be the God of your life and control your circumstances. Do you need me to say that again, some of you? You can't control your life. You don't know what tomorrow will bring. You don't. There's nothing you can do about that. But here's what Solomon says to us. Don't let that fact stop you from enjoying today. Don't let the idea that you can't control tomorrow stop you from enjoying the gift that God has given you today. Don't let that turn you into a fatalist or a cynic. Jesus put it this way in Matthew 6, 34, therefore do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Amen, Jesus. Why are you worrying about tomorrow? Something you can't even control. Live today. Live this day the God that God has given you. If you're on your notes there, Jesus' wisdom is the same as Solomon's. Enjoy today. Worrying about tomorrow does no good. I love how Tommy Nelson says this. He says, we all know that you'll eventually have that virus, and that root canal is so certain that it may as well already be scheduled. And one night you'll receive a phone call telling you your father has passed on. So today... You need to go get your two scoops of Rocky Road. (laughs) Friends, as eternal beings, we refuse to let what we can't control destroy what we can enjoy. We refuse to let what we can't control destroy what we can enjoy. Later in Ecclesiastes 11, Solomon's going to give this amazing example of this farmer who never plants seeds because there's always on the horizon a dark cloud that may mean rain. And there's no harvest, there's no crop, there's no produce because he keeps speculating about what might happen instead of not worrying about tomorrow and taking today for what comes. In the same way, storms come, winds blow, trees fall. Who knows what will happen? That's beyond your control. That's beyond your control. All you can do is live this day that God has given you to the full. Some of you remember the old movie Dead Poets Society with Robin Williams gathering his students around telling them to seize the day. It's similar. But we're not talking about pagan hedonism here. Solomon's already tried that and he says that's come up empty. He's talking about seizing the day in light of the reality that God is with you. He is doing this with you. He is life with you. And so part of what Solomon encourages us to think about is true enjoyment isn't just selfishness. It's not just going after all the pleasures that the world offers. He says in the end of the verse there to do good. That's where you'll find enjoyment. Eat, drink, be merry, and do good. Live a life that matters here on the ant farm. 
If you're following there on your notes, one of the keys to enjoyment of life is to joyfully use our time in the service of God. You want to enjoy today? Joyfully use your life in the service of God. Every believer should do good at home, loving the people with whom he or she lives. Every believer should do good at their job, serving God in the ordinary duties of an earthly calling. Every believer should do good in the church, using his or her spiritual gift. In at least one regular ministry, every believer should do good work in society, showing and telling others about the good news of Jesus Christ. As we do good in our generation, we find meaning, we find fulfillment, and Solomon says, as you're doing that, enjoy life. Enjoy life that God has given to you. Celebrate the good things as they come. Eat and drink. Enjoy the pleasure God has made you to enjoy. I always think about this. God didn't have to make us with five senses, and yet he did. He gave us taste buds. How awesome is that? So go enjoy that dinner. Go enjoy that brunch at Cracker Barrel after this service. Enjoy the game night with your kids. Enjoy the fall weather. Light that fire in your backyard. Sit around some chairs with some friends and enjoy the day that God has given you. As we do that, we will have a much better attitude at whatever life throws our way. We can grudgingly accept life as a burden, but friends, you will miss all the gifts that are right before you each and every day. Seize the day. Seize the day that God has given you today. Second thing Solomon suggests is that we should trust God's sovereign plan. Trust God's sovereign plan. Look at verses 14 and 15. I know that everything God does will endure forever. Nothing can be added to it and nothing taken from it. God does it so that people will fear him. Whatever is has already been, and what will be has been before, and God will call the past to account. Again, we're coming full circle here. Listen, this just means that if God is truly sovereign over time, we have to make one of two decisions. He is trustworthy or he is not. Can I trust God with my life? Can I trust that he knows the right season? the right time for everything under the sun for me. Most of us would prefer to manage our own agenda. Let's just be honest about that. And we're quick to criticize God's timing in our lives. But instead of getting impatient or troubled by God's timing, I've learned this lesson, I need to heed it more often, is that I just need to hurry up and wait on God more. I just need to hurry up and wait on God more. Not trying to set my own agenda for life. Do you believe in the timeliness of God? Not just for the world in general, but for your own individual life. Do you trust him for his timing and the seasons of your life? Listen, have you ever had the experience, I'm sure you have, where you thought God didn't come through in a situation? Maybe it was that relationship you really wanted to have or that job opportunity you thought was gonna be perfect for you. God didn't come through. You ask the question, we all ask, why God? And then you look back a year later and go, oh, now I know why. Why didn't I just hurry up and wait on you? 
Why do I try to manage and control my situations and my lives when I can trust that you are working all things in my life together for the good? I've had this happen many times, right, where I am trying to stick to my schedule. And something happens to take me out of my schedule and I end up having a conversation with someone who I wasn't expecting to have a conversation with and it changes my whole day. It changes the trajectory of my day, perhaps even changes their life or my life. I can miss those moments though when I'm trying to control what God has set before me instead of trusting him. I think of life kind of like a jigsaw puzzle. We have one sitting on our table right now that we've been working on. It's a doozy. And you ever had this experience where you're looking for one piece? And you look, and you look, you're under the table, you're under the piano. I'm speaking from personal experience right now. Like if I just had that one piece, this would all make sense. And finally you find it. Like, ah, now I get it. Now I get what it's supposed to look like. That's our life, friends. Sometimes we don't see all the puzzle pieces that God is putting together for us, but can we trust that he is sovereign over our lives, that he has a good plan for those who love him? One of the best illustrations of this in the Bible is the story of Joseph from Genesis. Joseph was given a vision, a dream that he was going to be a ruler, that his brothers would bow before him. Instead, what happens? His very brothers that he thought would bow before him throw him in a pit, and then sell him into slavery. He's taken to Egypt where he thinks, well, maybe now things are gonna turn around. Nope, he's thrown into jail eventually, and he's completely forgotten about. For years, we read the Bible, and it's like, oh, that just happened. No, 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 years. Puzzle pieces missing. Finally, one day, he is made second in command over all of Egypt. He does, in fact, become a ruler. God fulfills his promises over time. His brothers come. They're hungry. They need food. They bow before him. The dream God had given him comes true. And they're worried. They're thinking, well, he's going to kill us. He's going to be really mad about this. But instead, because Joseph trusted God's sovereignty, says these incredible words in Genesis 50, 20, which are on your notes. Would you read them out loud with me? He says, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Wow. I'm not sure I would have had that perspective. And yet Joseph did. Why? Because he trusted the God who is sovereign over time. Is the absolute rule of God a source of hope for you or a source of discouragement? Solomon says it should lead us to this sense of fear here. Some people think that means that God wants to frighten us into submission, but the trouble with that interpretation is that the fear of the Lord is one of the most positive concepts in the entire Bible. The Psalms and Proverbs often say the the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. In fact, not to give it away, but to give it away, the entire conclusion of the book of Ecclesiastes is fear the Lord. To fear God is not to cower before him. It's to revere him as the one who is sovereign. And as we do that, we realize if you're following, to fear God is to rest in him. 
is our foundation now and forever. To rest in him is our foundation now and forever. Psalm 34, 9 says it this way. Fear the Lord, you his holy people, for those who fear him lack nothing. We can trust him. We can trust him. We can trust him. Believing that he knows all things, including your present joys and your present trials, and he's working them for your good, even though you can't see it as you live in the ant farm. Can you accept that God is really God? And can you trust him and his sovereignty over your life? Far from discouraging us, if you're following, knowing God is in control encourages us to keep pressing on. Because he has set eternity in our hearts. We can keep pressing on. As we close and prepare to take communion together, I'm going to say one more thing. In case you're still unsettled, in case you're still not sure if this sovereign God is worthy of your trust, let, re- let me remind you of the message of Christianity. The message that makes Christianity unique among any other world religion. The message of Christianity is that God did not stay outside of the ant farm. He doesn't dictate our lives like we're puppets on a string. He actually entered into the ant farm with us. God in the flesh. Jesus, God, fully God, becoming fully human. In another poem or song in the New Testament, Paul writes about it this way. In Philippians 2, he says, In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset of Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. So just to get the scope of this, this is our life under the sun. Let's imagine this worship center is the highest heavens where God's glory dwells. Jesus left all of this and he entered into this. He became one of us in order to experience what we experience and to do so much more for us. So here, I just want to remind you if the hard things life is throwing at you today still bother you, I want you to remember as the one who entered into our world, Jesus faced the greatest injustice that has ever happened. It took place about 2,000 years ago where the perfect person who ever lived, the divine man, was rejected, betrayed, denied, tortured, put on a cross, killed. He of all people, didn't deserve that. And yet, just to take this full circle in Ecclesiastes 3 here, God took the greatest evil that has ever happened and has turned it into a reason for us to celebrate today. He took the greatest injustice, a reason for weeping, and he has turned it into a reason for rejoicing. Why did Jesus do that? So that our lives would not have to end here under the sun. If you're following, Jesus entered into time so that we might live for eternity. And because he did, the promise of Christianity is that the ant farm is not all there is. And therefore, life is not meaningless. Now, if God can do that, can he take your situation today? 
and use it for his good? Will God explain it to you? Nope. Not always. But has God proved himself to be worthy of our worship and trust? I don't know what else he could do. So seize the day. Seize the day he's given you today and trust him no matter what season of life you are in. And as we prayer for communion, the reason we can do that is I'll ask you to bow your head and listen to these words of Paul from Romans 8. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all. How will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither life nor death, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Oh Lord, I can't help but think of the psalmist who said, who are we, O oh Lord, that you would be mindful of us? You are the God who is sovereign. Nothing takes you by surprise. Help us to be people who trust that, who trust you, who trust that you are working all things, even the black note things in our lives for your good. And help us to enjoy the day you've given us. Not worried about tomorrow, for who knows what tomorrow will bring. But let us look at the people in our path, the situations we face, and let us take them as they come, enjoying the life you've given. We are not fatalists, we are not cynics, we are those who have great hope because our hope is in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.